This episode of Chicago's Bravest Story is brought to you by Zoll Medical and Zoll EMS and Fire. Engine 1, Engine 4, Truck 2, Truck 10, Ambulance 82, Battalion 2, Fire 1020 North Main, help is on the way. everything going. Oh, hey, did I you push I, the, you, the button's red, huh? The button's red. Oh. We are rocking and rolling. Welcome back to Chicago's Bravest Stories. Our special guest today is Rick Vega. Hi, Rick. Hi. How are you guys? We have been putting Hi. this together for a while, you and I. I talked to you when we first started our podcast, and your story was something that I was like, this is exactly what Chicago's Bravest Stories is all about. Before we get to there, kind of run us through... Like the beginning of your career. Tell us how, how you got on. When, uh, Where, the, where'd the you grow beginnings. up, Rick? I grew up in uh, Lakeview. I grew up uh, okay. East Lakeview. Um, um, I'm sure you guys are aware. You know, I was born in Cuba, and uh, we um, came here legally to escape uh, communism. Um, Batista had just gotten overthrown, uh, and I was the youngest of my family, so I was, uh, I was three, three and a half when I got here. It was, uh, wow. yeah, and we came I here. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, we came here legally. Um, my mom's youngest sister um, was a sur- surgical nurse in Havana, Cuba, and um, she was dating a doctor. Um, and he was a uh, Italian, believe it or not, um, spoke well, fluent Spanish. Yeah. And, uh, you know, th- along with other doctors that were with them, they had intels, you know, pretty much stating that uh, they were going to overthrow Cuba and we were, you know, we have to leave. And they had secured a job for them at Mercy Hospital, um, which at the time was a trauma hospital. Um, so wow. my mom's youngest sister said, well, I have to get, you know, my sisters out, the rest of my family out. I can't just leave with you guys. And, um, you know, the doctor that she was dating had said, you know, well, maybe we can get them out later, you know, but we have to leave. They may overthrow this country tomorrow. And that's when Castro was coming in to overthrow Batista. So um, he didn't like the fact that she wouldn't leave. So let me work on it. Let me work on it, he had said. And she put her foot down and said, I, I, I can't leave my family here. And my mom and dad, I was her only child, my mom and dad were divorced when I was two. Um, Both sides of my grandparents were Spaniards, and there was a lot of Spaniards living in Cuba at the time. So even Castro from, you know, later on in life, you know, understanding and and seeing things, uh, watching the news that, or you'd hear that Castro went to Spain or they, they brought in a doctor from Spain to operate on Castro or do whatever procedure needed to be done. So, well, I think Castro's personal doctor was Spanish. Correct. Right? Correct. Well, Spain. Spain, Spanish. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like here, you know, you had Native Americans. Um, they're really the true Americans. Um, well, in Cuba, there were Native, you know, Cubans. There were Indians, you know, the Hatue tribe. And there was another tribe there that I don't remember the name of. But, um, there, Spain did, you know, find Cuba, you know, um, but they were really, the Indians were the true, you know, 
you know, indigenous people of Cuba. Right. But my mom and dad, like I said, were divorced, and uh, my father was a journalist in in Cuba, had a newspaper in Cardenas, Cuba. Jesus. And oh, my. <laughs> when we were able to leave, you know, um, they wouldn't allow my dad to leave. Um, they wanted to see what he was writing in the papers, and they also... Uh, I mean, that's got to be the worst job right. to have when a government's being overthrown by communists. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, you, you don't know if they're going to kill him. For sure. But the worst part of the whole thing was, and like I said, I was the young child, you know, their only parent. You know, my, my their only child, my parents' only child. And um, my mom's oldest brother, um, I don't remember meeting him. I don't remember anything at Cuba. Um you know, just because my memory doesn't take me there, and I was right. three, and um, they did say I, I pretty much threw a fit at the airport uh, where they've never seen me come unglued like that, you know. Uh, <laughs> at three so years I knew, old? Right. Yeah, you know, literally I, the worst time and worst place you could. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I still have my passport, you know, from then, and um, but I knew something was going on, and my dad wasn't there. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was pretty horrific, but my mom's oldest brother tried a different avenue to get us out, and on the last day of us being there, um, this is what I hear, because like I say, I don't have any memories of anything, they, um, Castro's men beat him to death with the butts of their rifle, and, uh, killed him and left him on a beautiful beach there called Varadero. And um, they say this place is like paradise. So, I, I, you know, when you, when you left Cuba, you could have had a billion dollars in the bank or, you know, five dollars in the bank. They took it. Uh, they took your home. They took any possessions. Um, the government? So, to come here. The, the and, Cuban government? Yes. Okay. Well, the Castro. Oh, yeah. I mean, because um, prior to that, there really wasn't much problems there, and crime was, you know, not pro prevalent, you know. Um, so, you know, we got here, and I, I can't imagine, I mean, if I was an adult at that time, having to lose your uncle getting beaten to death oh, by man. Castro's men, you don't even have a chance to bury him. Your neighbors buried him, and you were never able to go back. And um, uh, that had to have been a horrific thing. So what my parents went through um, was incredible, you know, and uh, what other people are still going through there. Um, and when we got here in 1963, the beginning of 64, we obviously flew to Miami first, and from Miami flew to... Chicago, and they had gotten, you know, like I said, a, a, a setup with Mercy Hospital. My mom and my other aunt um, and my entire family, really, when we got here, they, uh, from what they tell me, they offered them welfare, um, and they were a proud people. Um, they said, no, we just, where can we learn English? Where can we learn, and where can we get a job? So yeah. Your parents didn't speak any English when they came here. No, initially. nothing, okay. nothing. And they they worked. They did. Uh, you know, in the beginning, they. I remember 
you know, hearing from them that uh, they worked at uh, this one location doing something, they worked at Fannie Mae, anywhere they can, you know, get, get a work, job, get, get work, because they wanted to work, they were proud, they, you know, they were intelligent people. Um, I mean, my mom had a graduate's degree, she was uh, an accountant, and they were just, you know, they had to feed me, they had to feed their other young kids, and they were so grateful to the United States for allowing us, um, you know, to come here. And then, you know, after that, nobody could come here. And then, of course, you know, they were re-educating kids there to communism, you know. And, um, you know, you, you see things now in, you know, 2022, and certain factions want to, you know, run a uh, socialist type agenda, which is synonymous with, Q, you know, with uh, communism, you know, how different. To, to this day, what little bit of family I have left, you know, because we're talking, this was 1961, um, they're the only house in Hollywood, Florida, um, that, that flies an American flag, and it's lit at night, and they're so pro-pro-American, um, and... My uncle, who was killed, had a child who was a year older than me that I've never met, and he's still in Cuba, and he was not allowed to ever leave, you know, oh. and it's just horrific. Just uh, fractured your family. Just oh, completely, and um, to see the, the pride they have in the United States, um, you know, I don't want to get political, but uh, just so grateful, you know, to this country uh, to give them a new start. And How did you guys land in Lakeview? We landed in Lakeview. Um, somehow they got us uh, an apartment at uh, 547 Melrose, which is the building that had the fire where right. my and, grandfather and, we'll, and, and I... We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But that's uh, somehow, you know, I, like I say, I was three, you know, going on four, um, and, you know, I don't remember any of that. They really didn't discuss any of that. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm still pretty much in the neighborhood there. Yeah. You know, I'm, well, yeah. you've you spent a good chunk of your life in that in that whole neighborhood. You I'm grew still up there. there. You work there. You still you still. Do, yeah, right. You still do live in that neighborhood. Yeah, I, I have no memories of Cuba. So, you know, my neighbor, you know, my my memories of are, are, are in that neighborhood. And, um, you know, I I have a home in Wisconsin. Uh, 65 miles door to door from my condo in La East Lakeview, and I mean, you hear you know people up there seeing all what's going on in in Chicago, and the lack of leadership here, you know, with the crime and you know everything. I mean, uh, they're like, what are you still doing there? But you know, I have memories of my dad walking me down the street. My dad was able; we were able to get him out in 1965. My dad had a Spanish passport, like I said, both both of my grandparents. Both sides on mom and dad's side were Spaniards. Um, he had a brother living in in uh, Spain. Uh, they were all from the Madrid, you know, uh, Castile region. So he was able to go there. And you know, I remember, you know, my aunt and, and uncle saying to my mother, you know, we have to get him out. You know, that's his only. So he child. went from Cuba to Spain. Yes, and then from Spain to, to United Chicago. States. Correct. And he, they got him an apartment on Aldine. We all lived in the, the same neighborhood, you know. So in 1963, you're three years old, right? 
In 63, uh, I was, well, my birthday seven months into the year, so um, either five or six. Okay. And you guys are living at that place in Melrose. Right. And so take us back to, oh, I'm sorry, you weren't three. It was in 1963. I was, yeah. You were five. I was, well, uh, the fire, I, I believe I told WGN at the time that I was five. My mom kind of... You know, but I did the math on there, and I had just turned six in July, and the fire happened okay. in November. So, you, so you just turned six in July, right? What happened that kind of changed your life forever? That fire, you mean? Yes. Well, unless um, we skipped over some, <laughs> Do we skip well, over yeah. more than just the. <laughs> no. he's, well, he's five years old, and he's already had a rough right, go. Yeah. Yeah. Say, he is just communism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right on the heels yeah. of a dictatorship overthrow. I'm getting, listen, I'm getting ready to sign up Rick for like a Chicagoland high school Fuck. history tour yeah. right now. I've I've succumbed to a, a tour a tour guide now. <laughs> oh God. Um, so well, this is. It's uh, November fifteenth, nineteen sixty-three, and it's the, the dead of winter. It's it, the dead of winter, and winters are pretty brutal then. Um, what time? What time of day was it about? It was just before midnight. Actually, a friend of mine, Jim Sension, who's a retired fireman, um, he uh, does some type of volunteering at the fire museum. And, um, of course, you know, Steve Little's fire, uh, father ran that museum. And he, I got a phone call a um, couple of months ago. Uh, it was in the middle of the summer stating he was at the museum. And he had said, Rick, um, where was that fire? And I told him 547 Mulrose. And I grew up with Jim because Jim grew up, he's my age, and he grew up in East Lakeview there. His dad ran the swing, swim pro t uh, program at Hull House, and pretty much taught every kid and, and, and person how to swim in Lakeview. Because yeah. the swing program is very different in that neighborhood. Yeah. Very like I said, times have changed. <laughs> yeah. It's now a swing program. Yeah. Don't uh, drop the soap. Um, and uh, do you remember anything about that day at all? I know you're relatively young. I do. Um, yeah. I have a very good memory. Um, you know, I remember I slept in the front bedroom with my mom. We had a four-bedroom, third floor. Um, that building was a three-story, ordinary, 12-flat. They had a common basement. Okay. And uh, I remember, you know, being little and sitting on the curb when the coal truck would pull pull up, and then they'd open Jesus. up that majestic... Yeah, some of those buildings still... Yeah. Like, my building has... A coal chute? That, yeah, a coal chute, and you yeah, see you them, see and the now metal, they're all welded the up. The metal on. gate that opened up, the yeah. metal door, and they would slide in... You know, right from the coal truck, they'd right. slide in this uh, little conveyor belt. And I remember sitting there, and then, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm only in the country a year <laughs> and a half, maybe, right. you know. But you guys, were, you guys were woken up by your neighbors. Yeah, they pounded on the door. Do you think if your neighbors hadn't pounded on your door that the outcome would have been different? Oh, without a doubt. Smoke detectors weren't around. That building didn't have any smoke detectors. I don't know if they were invented there. I had, uh, had invented then, you know. Um, somebody uh, had said to me uh, that they weren't. But we had these two guys living next door. They pounded on our door, and we were up on the third floor of the west. There was a west and east there. And we were out of the, you know, there was two entrances, three and three, you know, six flats, so yeah. third floors, so three north or 
or through or three east, east three west, west. Yeah. exactly. So they pounded on our door, and I mean pounded. And when my uncle opened the door, uh, yeah, everybody was sleeping. You know, it was almost midnight. It was just before midnight. They opened the door, and they turned the lights on. I could see this black smoke coming into. You know, brown black smoke coming into the and, coming in and, through the door. And I've never smelled open. anything like that or seen anything like that. Yeah. And I remember my grandfather putting a, a towel over my head and get out, get out, get out. And you know, you could hear, you know, sirens. You could can, hear. Can we get, can we get you? you could hear pounding. Perfect. You could hear, you know, uh, you know, sirens. Um, and I mean, I, I remember it like it's now. I mean, it's it, yeah. you know, I have. A, a really who, good memory. And who lives? Who lives in the building with you? It's your aunt, your uncle. It's my your aunt, mom, my aunt, uncle. Okay. My grandfather and my aunt and uncle's two kids. You know, and a lot of people in this and place. my yeah. mom and I. And wow. but it was four bedrooms. And I remember asking them back. You know, later on in life, you know, I said, "What were you guys paying?" You know, for a place oh, there. Oh God. And it was uh, fifty dollars. Fifty dollars. Yeah. Oh, there you go. It was fifty bucks. And 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 if you were a good tenant, paid your rent, kept the thing clean. I mean, my aunt would go downstairs and like sweep and 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 shovel and sweep. Help and, out around it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, just because they were clean, they were just good people. You know, yeah. and um, they, were pr- they want you know, prideful, like you, you said. owned the building, you wanted to keep a person yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. And so your family just occupied that one unit. Then, yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, from what I understand, because when WGN, uh, when uh, Pam Grimes did the, uh, um, she was the, uh, the producer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and Steve Sanders, you know, did the, you know, he was the guy that was talking to me. Um, we were able to meet uh, the person on the second floor, and they turned that place into a duplex. And we were able to go into, there was that video, and we were able to go into the basement and, you know, and it starts out the whole thing where... Um, to this day, is it still like that? You oh, know? yeah. I mean, where you could see the charring on the beams there. Um, but I remember everybody going down, going down, going down, and you could hear screaming down there, you know, and pounding, and, you know, it was, you know, guys knocking in doors probably, you know, firemen knocking in doors. So at, the, at this time, you're, you're coming out of the apartment, you're coming down the stairs out of the apartment? Yeah, we were the last ones. Okay, do you know where the fire was in relation to where you are right now at this moment? Like, where was the fire located? It was in a basement, and it was a common common basement, so it shared the entire width of the building. Yeah, and it was. They said later on they found out uh, that it was the coal chute that it started in. Okay, Um, but we, my grandfather and I, were the last ones to go down. Because I remember my grandfather says, go, 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 go. And, you know. Can you, you, see, know, can you see anything at this point? Um, you yeah, you could see the light starting. You know, we were on the third floor, so we were at the top. So you could see, and the smell was in, incredible, you know. And um, somehow my grandfather started coughing. You know, my dad, my grandfather was a carpenter. I mean, he was a tough guy. You know, he was a short, short guy, but, uh, uh, you know, pretty tough guy, you know. And, uh He's got me, and I don't know if I dropped a slipper or something. Right. But I remember him. We had gone down one landing, you know, one set of stairs, and then there's a landing, and it, you know, you know, you know what a, a three flat ordinary, you know, yeah, uh, looks like. And, um, you know, if there's no windows, you've got a skylight. You, you know, the we had a skylight, so not a real lot of light. 
But I remember going for my slipper or something while he had set me down to cough. And uh, I don't know if he wanted to readjust me, but that's when the fire department and I could hear him coming up. And, you know, I, I feel this mitt grab me <laughs> and, and, and then somebody's got my grandfather. And um, now I'm not vertical anymore. You know, I'm like tucked underneath this guy's arm. And we're going down. And he's got he's, you in a Heisman carrier or whatever. He's just like kind of holding <laughs> you. Yeah, he's got me like my head forward, you know, yeah. so I'm like horizontal well, he, he, now. He yeah. said in an interview that you went back to go get your slipper. That's what he remembered. Yeah, I didn't go back into the building, but I was on that landing. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and he said you were. I got out of my grandfather's uh, arms. Sounds like he's calling you a liar, Rick. <laughs> no, well, he could call me a liar. Eddie could, could call me anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that guy, I think, and was we'll, a and World we'll get, War II. We'll get to him. Yeah, we'll get to he him He was like in a, a World War II vet. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah. he, he, you guys, you and your grandfather get separated, and then next thing you know, you're being carried by Eddie. And he's and got he's, my grandfather. And he's got the both of you, and he kind of puts you guys back together. Right. And what he says something amazing to you about holding your grandfather's hand. Yeah, we make it all the way down. And as we're going down, I mean, we're getting knocked around. And now, I mean, the, the, you know, the smoke is getting worse. And we're coughing and coughing, and we make it to the first floor, and that's to the left is the adjoining, the door that goes into the basement. And they've got that wedged open, and I'm looking at the floor, and I see these hose lines, you know, these big lines. That, you know, I'm five, six years old. I'm like, what the hell is that? You know, right. and so they take me outside, and they grab my grandfather outside, and you know, the ambulances there were Cadillacs, you know, <laughs> and uh, we go out and, you know, the chief is there and, uh, you know, there's guys coming in and out and you could hear breaking windows, ladders going up. And I look up and, you know, I see this big ladder up going to the roof. And I mean, you know, those were wooden ladders, you know, those were the wooden mains back then. But I remember what really, really woke me up was looking at the basement windows and just seeing that sea of fire just rolling by, you know, rolling in there. And, I mean, you're just looking at it, man. You're like, whoa, look at that, you know. And, you know, my mom's got me, everybody's crying, and that's pretty much what I remember of that. You, know? you don't remember Eddie telling you to hold your grandfather's yeah. hand and then tell everybody that you're the one You know, he might have said something to me because I remember him rubbing my my head. yeah. He's, you know, rubbing my head. My mom's hugging him. And well, in an interview, he said that uh, to hold your grandfather's hand and tell and, him and that that you saved your grandfather. Exactly. <laughs> you know, back to the World War II guys. I mean, that's what what those guys are. I mean, this was a you know had to have been a walk in a park for the guy. And really, when the guy that put the story together um, was Ray Bishke. And when I came on the job in '83 in February. Um, you know, Ray was in the 9th Battalion, and he was on the 2nd Platoon, and I was on the 2nd Platoon over he there. He was a captain at the time, right? Yes. He so, was the captain of Truck 44. Okay, so before we get too far ahead of that, yeah, the guy that you ran into, and you kind of credit Eddie for bringing you out and, and saving you... Was Ray Bischke. Ray Bischke? Yeah. At, at, well... Eddie's the one who found you on the stairs. Right. But Ray was the one who put the story together. Yes. Later. Much later, much later oh. on. That was like almost, what, 
40 years later oh, that they yeah. put it together? Um, it was, I mean, I, I believe it was... Because this is the part of the story that, that I kind of get lost at, and I really wanted to nail this down with you on how that... And like we're getting way, way ahead of ourselves, but after that fire, we'll move forward to you wanting to be a firefighter. Is that the pivotal moment where you wanted, you said to yourself, I want to go do that? Well, obviously, obviously that was like the most incredible thing other than me um, exploding here from, yeah. Yeah, uh, me exploding in the airport because my dad's <laughs> not with me and coming unglued at the airport because I was a pretty calm kid. Um, that was happens. pretty insane. I was going to say, so this happens. How does this affect you going forward after five, six years old? Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't have a problem with it. Right. Um, and... But I remember being in the neighborhood, you know, I went to grade school across the street at, at St. Luke, uh, uh, not St. Luke, I went there after at fifth grade, but I was at Nettlehorse up until fourth grade. And, but there was a lot of fires in the neighborhood there. But and how does Rick Vega decide to be a firefighter and how do you wind up getting on the Chicago Fire Department? Well, after going to all these fires, because, you know, we were little kids and we were on these, you know, I was a, a little kid in the 60s. So we're riding stingrays, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, a, I mean, like yeah. a little, well, you they look like little motorcycles. You didn't have an right. iPad, you didn't have hey, You guys games. are out there yeah. riding around, you see a fire truck go by and you're chasing the fire we're truck. We're chasing and, them, yeah. And yeah. then some kids would say, oh my God, we didn't use the term, look at that header, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, but you'd see smoke coming and... The one, the one moment I remember, and I mean, we, we, we went to a lot of these things. They'd be burning on Broadway. There'd be a fire on Roscoe. There'd be fire on Aldine. Or... Because the area that you live in then is n nothing like what it is today. Nothing. I mean, you had, <laughs> you had common sense back then, and you had blue collar kind of. Most people were blue collar. Um, and if you look at my kindergarten picture if you look at my first second grade pictures it looks like the united nation you know when we right, all right you know you had a a german kid you know sitting next to a jewish kid you had american indians sitting next to a, a eastern indian you know um well let's put it this let's put it to you this way you had a four-bedroom apartment in lakeview for fifty dollars that same thing that same place right now rent wise is probably two three grand right now at least, because it's yeah. four bedrooms. I mean, they had to have paid, and, and they turned it into a duplex. But I, when they bought that 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 thing up there, I mean, it it had to have been four hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand. Right. And so the fire companies around the area that you lived in, mm -hmm. they were busy. Oh yeah, these buildings were loaded with people, uh, like your family. You mm -hmm. know, immigrants from another country. There's a uh, you know multiple folks living in in the in the yeah, units multi-generational multi-generational families, families living in the units yeah. and and we see this in different neighborhoods around chicago now but yeah they, those fire companies back then they were rocking you know it was busy the whole east end i mean and i mean it was just incredible i remember this is a this is the moment where i said and i'm old enough to think and yeah, yeah and put things together and, you know, and a majority of Vietnam was going on. My, my cousin, oh, who was right. 10 years older than me, he enrolled. I mean, 
he enrolled he he enlisted enrolled he enlisted in uh, Vietnam. <laughs> right. You know, went to Vietnam because he was so grateful that the United States took us in. And he was ten years. My birthday is July seventh, nineteen fifty seven. He was July 9th, 47, and, um, he, and he was there during the Tet Offensive. I mean, he was there 67, 68, never talked about the war, came back with a little dog, but uh, um, that's how grateful, and I'm telling you, I, I, I can only imagine what he had saw on. He was an Army guy, and he passed away in the uh, in 1980s, in the 80s, um, and I got him a memorial brick at a, a VFW post. And uh, George Torah, 67, 68, United States Army. But there was a fire on Aldean, and it, we were still living at 547, not, uh, on Belmont, I should say. We were still at uh, 547 Melrose. And I remember getting, they were pounding on the thing. I, rem I remember seeing this header. And this is the moment, and it may sound corny, whatever, I don't care what it sounds, but I'm probably, oh, I don't know, 10 maybe, maybe a, uh, not quite 11 yet, maybe 10. Okay. And I remember being in, because that building butted our building, uh, uh, so to say, because um, the backside of, you know, we're on Melrose the next street south is Belmont, and it was an apartment building, U-shaped courtyard, and I remember firemen running down the alley there, and there, I mean, at this point in time, and I remember it like it's happening right now, they had our undivided attention, and I'm sitting there with my friends, there's got to be like six of us there, and there were some girls that were there with us that were playing in the play lot of Nettlehorst. And um, they were there too. And I see this woman crying, crying, crying. And she says, my child's in there, my child's in there. And looking at her, and I see the chief holding her. I don't know any of these guys. And I remember the chief, I mean, physically grabbing them, like grabbing them by their collars yeah. and pointing up. And I could see him saying something. And they went up. Well, they got hose lines in front. I have no idea. Now I would know that. You know, I'm 10. I don't know what's happening. Mm. And all I know is that they have got all of our undivided attention. And these guys are walking up the second floor. They're trying to look through the window. And they pry the door open. And you could see this black smoke and heat. I mean, I can't see the heat. You see the black smoke you know, coming out of there. I mean, just rolling oh, out of there. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they crawl in, they crawl in. And I'm remembering this like it's happening right now. Yeah. And we're looking at them. And then nobody's broken out that kitchen window. And I get it now, you know, after 37 years in the department and retired. <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, one guy comes out coughing, 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 throwing up. And then the other guy's still not out yet. And he's coughing and coughing, and he goes back in, and people, you know, you could hear people, no, no. And he comes back out, and the other guy, and he's screaming down at, at, at the chief or somebody down there. And all of a sudden, man, you, you hear this bang, you know, and everybody, like, gasps in the alley. I mean, there's got to be, like, 40 people in the alley, you oh, know, yeah. watching this. 
And all of a sudden, this guy crawls out, and he's got this kid with him, like, you know, his coat's open and partially closed, and he's got this kid, like, in the coat. coat, And he brings him down, and they're all full of soot and and water and everything, And, and he hands the kid to the mother, and the chief's talking to him, the chief's, you know, looking him over, looking him over, and... I tell you what, man, that moment, I mean, we're all looking at each other. I mean, we had no words. And and I remember him, he's looking at us, and I remember he takes his helmet off and he puts it on my friend's head, you know? <laughs> and he's taking his coat off, and it was a warm day that day. And I rem- Jewel is around the corner, you know, on Broadway there, across the street from where the gap is now. And that was a, a Woolworth at the time. We used to eat at the lunch at the counter there. But this is this is firemen. And they came over with little bottles of Coke, you know, in these little wooden crates. And these two guys who just did this rescue, this is how selfless they are, man. They gave the Coke to us, to the, to the little kids that were there. And then he grabs the Coke, and then my buddy, you know, he took the, the helmet off my buddy and put it on my head. And as corny as it sounds, that's all, how that all this played shit out. Happened, and they're playing public service right now. Dear yeah. Coca-Cola, <laughs> there is a very big football game coming up. Right. If you want to contact Chicago's Bravest Stories podcast <laughs> about a commercial. Send us that stuff with the real Coke. We're, in it, we're here. We're here. I think I have that bottle. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Right here. Ding. What an incredible, mind-blowing yeah. story. Yeah, it like, was Full sugar Coke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I grew up wanting to be a fireman because my dad was a fireman and my grandpa was a fireman. Uh, and but I knew nothing about being a fireman and never experienced anything like that in my life. Yes, yeah, seeing it. Holy shit. And 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 that's how it happened, huh? And that's how it happened. And I'll tell you what every kid on that block wanted to be a fireman after that. We helped them with the hose. I mean, it it, it didn't end at that moment, you know. I mean, and from then on. From then on, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. And and I had more in common. You know, of course, there were kids in the neighborhood that became doctors, uh, you know, lawyers. Sure. Um, but from then on, that was, you know, I've never, I mean, I've told the story to other people, but no, never in a, a, a scenario like this. Uh, yeah. But that, that's how it happened. But, hey, you know what? I grew up with guys... In I the got, neighborhood, I got goosebumps. <laughs> that became firemen. Sid Bluestein, I worked my whole career with him. Um, he grew up in and went to Nettle Horse with me. Um, He's Cuban too, right? He is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just. Messing. All right. <laughs> he was a Jewish Cuban. Yeah. Um, and Carmelo Cuban. Carmelo Cuban. Flores. Carmelo Flores was a great fireman, great athlete, tremendous wrestler. I grew up with him. Uh, so Rick, where? How did you? wind up applying for the fire department because you're a little guy at this time. Right. When you get older, how does that happen? Well, where'd you go to high school? I went to Luther North. All right. I was class all right. of 75. Uh-huh. Yeah. Play sports? You know, I was doing karate at the time, and oh, I know okay. they wanted me to do... My little uh, guy does karate. 
Um, I was a member of Bushido Karate. Um, we're going, you know, like I said, I've had many mentors in my life and people put in my path um, at certain times of my life where if you believe in God or you believe in whatever, um, like how we got out of Cuba, how did we get out of Cuba and other people didn't? How did we get rescued and, uh, you know, other people didn't? And um, I had a guy named Fred Degerberg who uh, was my big brother, um, and hopefully he'll listen to this podcast. He, oh, he was, a, uh, he was a, my uh, karate instructor at Bushido, and Bushido was at Hamlin Park. They used a field house back in the 70s. Um, so Terry Stewart was a member of Bushido. Terry Stewart was on Truck 44. He's a retired... Uh, um, so did you like find out that they were hiring and you went and filled out an application? I did. What? Are you getting nervous? Are you a black belt in karate? No, I, I made it to brown belt. Um, okay. What are you? Did you? What are you? I, I don't do karate. Well, I, I know, uh, but I think Rick could beat your ass. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I want to get that. All right. Well, hey, Rick, do you want some more creamer for your coffee? Or no? You know what? I think this coffee might need some Jameson. No. Oh, here's <laughs> creamer for me. Oh, jeez. Creamer for me. So- <laughs> he sounds like a hurling. No, but he was a mentor, and um, there was a couple guys uh, there that were firemen, and um, Fred... Uh, pretty much uh, was such an important factor in my life and growing up. Uh, How old were you when you're when you're taking uh, karate at this? Um, I'm in high school. I'm probably okay. freshman into a sophomore year. And your mindset's still like I still kind of I still want to be a fireman. Oh for yeah. The most part. Oh, okay. oh yeah. I mean, and so without these guys a doubt, just kind of help reinforce Absolutely. that too, huh? Um, and he was the one that, and I was real skinny. Um, <laughs> but he he got me into Protein powders, nutrition, um, he got me into working out. Fred, prior to him doing uh, martial arts, he was an Olympic lifter and a power lifter. But um, so kind of that's so how when it, you're. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, Rick, but I'm just saying, like, so um, you know, obviously, you, you and your grandfather, that situation with the house fire by you, the the heroism you saw of these guys making grabs on the um with the apartment fire like the heroism from that and then you're in you're in martial arts now and like really just a uh, what was it about these guys that that really like dug into you i mean obviously they were they were taking care of themselves they were fit the strength of them yeah the discipline, the um, discipline. okay you know the way they carried themselves fred was the one vince that started me he had a black ball crew that ran security at the oregon and they would walk the line in and and he would have a word with them and, um, you know, everybody in line. Because there were, back then, people, you know, would wait in line for three days, depending on, on you know, whatever. And, uh, what you know, what band was playing and the draw that was coming in. And we worked for Jam Productions. Um, it was Windy City Productions for a little bit, and, and then it was Jam. Is Jam still around? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's a whole that's a whole section that I definitely want to get to because that brings you and I together. Yes. So let's uh, you what when do you start the fire academy? Well, I take the test in '78. Um, there were some guys in the neighborhood with oh, some with oh, some big names that 
that we would know yeah. that went on to yeah. great careers um, within the fire department. Great firemen. Um, How old are you at the time? Um, I'm, well, listen to this. Yeah. Um, because of Fred Dagerberg. Is that Dagerberg Academy? That was the one over. Lincoln Avenue. Yeah, I was going to say. Right. And yeah. that was, at that time, he only had one gym. Right. Okay. Uh, he, at the time, he had Bushido. And then it wasn't Dagerberg Academy. No, Bob Beal was actually his instructor, and Bob Beal um, knew and uh, Muhammad Ali trained with Muhammad Ali. He was a boxer. He he is in Bob Beal is in the Boxing Hall of Fame. Um, he had a brother named Ivan Beal. I think uh, there's videos of Bruce Lee training at Dagerberg Academy. Yes, right? Benny Urquidez trained yes. at Dagerberg Academy. Yeah, um, Bill Wallace. Uh, Superfoot. Superfoot. Fred <laughs> Dagerberg uh, not only did that security thing, but Fred Dagerberg, when they shot the Blues Brothers movie, he was in the movie with Terry Stewart, who was a retired uh, lieutenant. And they were in the movie. But Fred Dagerberg and Bill Superfoot Wallace were security for Aykroyd and Belushi. No kidding. Yeah. And back then, I remember... When they were filming that, um, behind uh, the Earl of Old Town, which is now Corcoran's, across the street from Second City, there's a coach house. And Belushi and Aykroyd had bought that coach house and turned it into a place to stay. Uh, and they turned the basement into a full-on bar. And I was in there. I was in there. They just bought the house while they were so place to hang out while they were filming. Yeah, I took them. I don't know how long it took them to to film the Blues Brothers, but it was all obviously done here. And um, I remember going in there with Fred. Um, and this is between Bushido Karate had ended, Duggarberg Academy hadn't started, and my friend owns all the Chicago Athletic Clubs. And his first one was up in Evanston that he worked at. He was a uh, manager there. And they sold him. The owners sold him Evanston Athletic Club. And the first one that he used was a place named Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Turner. Turner's. Yeah. That's what the, the CAC is now, right? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, Lincoln Park Athletic Club, LPAC. And that's where his office is, my friend's office. And I train there now because I worked out at World Gym for a bunch of years when it was in Uptown, and uh, COVID killed that place. And um, they had turned it at the end there. Uh, well, was, you know what was cool about that Lincoln Turner Gym? It You could go there, and it was like American Gladiators. There was no supervision. They just had ropes you could swing on, big pits, these big mats, and you would just go there with your friends and just destroy each other. It was like for <laughs> gymnastics and like primitive weightlifting just, and stuff like that. I was going to say, that. you just get done watching a Bruce Lee movie. Well said, Vince. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, yeah. you didn't have to sign anything. You just walked in <laughs> wow. and it was just like, one, two, three, go. And just you and your buddies just destroyed each just other. Just melee each other. Just melee. <laughs> and you get out of there, you're 55, 55 <laughs> uh, person down at Lincoln Turner. <laughs> Unknown boss. <laughs> But uh, I've heard of that before. <laughs> oh yeah, magically, we got, magically, pole. fifty-five never made it in the place. The guy was always outside when they got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Fred, prior to my buddy uh, acquiring that place, um, had a storefront there, and there's pictures you can Google it on Blues Brothers or, or Fred Duggerberg, and there's pictures. And I trained in there a couple of times, and he was teaching Aykroyd and Belushi and Belushi's wife. Uh, 
karate in there, and they had hanging bags, um, you know, off of a swing set, kind of like a la Bush, you know, Bushido, where they had a swing set, and instead of swings, it was bags hanging. Um, so, but there's a picture of that, and Bill Superfoot Wallace is there. That was my first time meeting him. Yeah, but Fred is, uh, I mean, he's incredible. Uh, I mean, Danny and Asano did things, you know, that was Bruce Lee's number one yeah. student. Um, uh, but you know, the colleague guys. Tons of firemen have trained there. At, uh, well, yeah, you know, Fred Deckerberg trained there. Um, there was uh, Paul Ventichenkwi, who was a tremendous police officer, tremendous guy in, um, you know, Lakeview in, in 23rd District, trained there. Um, Johnny Lira, Johnny Lira, the boxer, you know, grew up at Ogden and Grand. Um, you know, uh, we actually, when I was, uh, it was in the 70s, he was a welterweight champion, and he fought Ernesto Espana at the Hilton, um, you know, for the world championships, and we sat in the front row. No kidding. This just went off. So, um, take, yeah, definitely have some coffee. <laughs> um, take a look at your list. What, uh, where are you at? What do you want to okay, hit before we, um, before we started working at concerts? Um, I like that. Let's so get we're right before, here. Before we'll get into the concerts. Before you were a fireman? No, this is 1973. I'm a sophomore in high school. Oh, okay. I'm what? a member of Bushido. Yeah. And, uh, I asked Fred. Here, hold on one second. Oh, sorry. Hey, Steve, while, we're, while, we're, while we got a minute, who, uh, who do we want to thank here? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Illuminated, Illuminated Brewworks. Okay. Uh, Brian, I texted him last night. Did you? Yeah, we've been out of beer. I texted <laughs> Brian uh, last night, and right. I said, hey, uh, any chance I could come in sometime in the morning? We're doing a podcast, pick up some beer. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I got a hand truck, a whole hand truck of beer waiting for us. So I'm doing my usual right now, Orange Sunshine. Yeah, uh, it's a great breakfast great. beer. And uh, he has uh, some inner space for us, Ooh. some outer space. Uh, we got the War on Christmas uh, is the other one we haven't tried yet. <laughs> and then we got our, our usuals, uh, Fruit Creep and, and all uh, those other ones. Got some yeah. astronaut juice, Trust. Um, yeah, Ricky, we'll have to we'll have to grab you some of these before you go. Are you a yeah. beer guy? Um, yeah, you know I, I like whiskey. I mean, yeah. I like beer. I'm not, I, I don't drink uh, a real lot, but I do. You know, a couple yeah. a day. I'm kind of the same. A couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> you retired. I mean, yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. But you know, I'm in the gym uh, four or five days a week. Right? Yeah, right. you can Just, afford them. Right. Yeah, Corey we, and I, uh, on the other hand, man, nah, nah, so <laughs> but uh, Brian says, uh, get the fuck to the brewery. Yeah. Yeah. Us? Oh, everybody that's listening, because. Yeah. There's some cool things going on there. They have different parties and different occasions. And yeah, I mean, we'll we'll talk later on, but, like, I've been getting a lot of phone calls from buddies about doing a um, another live thing. Yeah, we're going to, yeah, a live which, thing. Which or? we definitely will, but, like, just, just kind of going along those lines, like how cool of a place Illuminated is. I oh, mean, yeah. Again, you walk in, it's, like, it's it's a little off the beaten path to find, but, like, once you guys make it in there, it's just awesome. Yeah, and like, Six-Foot so Rob great. loves everybody with yeah. his long hair. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho. Please visit us at sportsandortho.net. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by the Frontline Team. And their phone number is 630-534-2900. You guys can also email them at thefrontlineteam at 
thefederalsavingsbank.com. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories brought to you by Rescue One CBD, a firefighter-owned company taking care of first responders with their CBD oil that's guaranteed to be 0.000% THC, making it safe for the job. Enter promo code BRAVEST and you'll receive 25% off your order. Again, type in the promo code BRAVEST and you'll get 25% off all Rescue One products. Go to rescueonecbd.com and place your order. All right, so where did we leave off with you, Rick? Okay, um, we're... So- now so that we we're get getting this into okay, we're done with Fred Darkenberg being my mentor, this and that, and getting me into working out, this and that. So I started working concert security. Okay, at this time you're, you're at the Aragon. what a sophomore in high school you're thinking. Yeah, or? I'm a I'm a sophomore in high school. Okay. Um, what does security at the Aragon Ballroom pay? You know, back then we were getting paid cash. They paid pretty much oh, the head yeah. of security, and then he broke it down. Um, nice. This is how it happened. I knew he, yeah. that he. Work there because I knew some of the the guys would say, "Hey, are are, are you um, working the Oregon tonight?" Right. So he was short a guy, and I'm a sophomore, and I probably got uh, two years or you know or two and a half years in the uh, karate with him, and uh, I mean I've known him since I was a little boy. So you know he lived two doors away from me on Aldine. Um, I mean I talk to him all the time still. So. He said, hey, well, Terry Stewart had said to him, well, what about Ricky Vega? And, and he goes, oh, he goes, well, I got to ask his father. I got to ask your father. And I said, okay. I go, can I, can I work? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, come on, Dad, come on. So, no, no, I'm talking about Fred. I'm right, asking right, him, right. Can, I really, can I really go with you? Yeah. <laughs> so sure enough, he gets all of my dad. He comes down. They lived, I mean, he lived three doors away Everyone's from me. Everyone's in the neighborhood, right? Yeah. So, you know, and he went to Nettle Horse as well. He grew up in the neighborhood. And he said, yeah, as long as he's with you, okay. So he says to me, wear a pair of loose pants. And I had these Oshkosh Bagash, you know, pants. And I, he goes, wear some comfortable shoes. I got my gym shoes on. Bring your karate top and a belt. That was your uniform? That was the uniform uh, at, that at we Aragon? walked the line in. Yeah, I got a it's, picture. It's, iro- it's ironic because Steve's actually wearing the exact same thing right now. <laughs> I've got underneath that. Have, I don't have underwear on, though. <laughs> well, obviously. Obviously, Steve. Like you. Um, so. No kidding. That, we was, do that this. was your uniform. So, so we showed up. Yeah, and we were the guys because that was a specialized crew. And I'm telling you, on that crew, we had... Um, Killers. Bob Beal's brother, Ivan, yeah. who, I mean, this guy had the hardest punch in the Midwest. Right. You had Johnny Lira. Johnny Lira hit me once and I peed blood for 10 days <laughs> and he hit me not, not at a hundred percent at like probably 10, you know, he hit me with, he hit me with a, uh, like an uppercut, a small step in, in pop, and it hit me in the in the kidneys, and that's a that's another story. But but we had him. You had Mike Armanderas, who was a DEA guy. You had Jack Haffercamp, who was the rock editor for the Chicago Daily News. You had Fred Duggerberg, and I'm the fifteen year old angsty sophomore. Yeah, exactly. But just killers on this team. Well, I'll tell you what, and then he had. You know, later on, you had you, you know, 
of these cops that were with us so that were t- tremendous, and they, they trained at Bushido as well. Um, so that's how it started. But my first concert was in 1963, and it was Leon Russell. Leon you know? Russell. Yeah, okay. and I'm 15 years old. And uh, I'll tell you what, man, that was another moment What life was never the same again, you know. <laughs> and as the years went on, I'm 75, I graduated high school. I didn't know really what I wanted to do, but I had just joined. You, you mean 73 that you, you saw your first concert, not 63. 73. 73. Yeah, 70, yeah. yeah, 63. I got rescued as a little boy. Yeah, yeah 73. Um, and... All of a sudden, one day turned into, you want to work next week? You want to work next week? And we worked... All, all at the Aragon. All at the Aragon at that time. And then later on, you know, we did shows at uh, the Amphitheater. Was the we Vic open the Riviera. there? Yes. And the Riff? Yeah, but the, the Vic didn't really have concerts at that time. The Riviera had concerts. The Uptown, I had I got to work the Uptown. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we did a week long of Aerosmith in 1975, 76 at the Aragon. I mean, the police were on mounted horses. Uh, we did anybody who was anybody that was in the rock world, um, came through there. Ted Nugent, that was his absolute favorite place to play. I mean, he's the one I believe that dubbed it. At the, the brawl room? Yeah. He, I, he's the one I believe that dubbed it the Aragon brawl room. Really? But they were interviewing... Ted Nugent. And I mean, I worked Ted Nugent there probably more than anybody. He was the Motor City Madman, so it's not far from Detroit. And that was his absolute favorite place to play. And he's the one I believe dubbed it that that name. And he says, you know, you fire marshal rule, he said on this broadcast, was 4,000. They probably packed 6,000 there. And you walk out to the edge of the stage and you look down and you look up and the Aragon, which is beautiful, it looked yes. like a fort, like a Spanish fort in the middle of a desert. There were projection booths in in like these corners of the Aragon that were have clouds going by. And then you had tinkling stars yes. in the Aragon. And it was definitely, at one time, the most expensive dance floor in the <laughs> world. And Jolly ran the, you know, he's the best stage stage guy. He had a crew of stagehands, and he's worked everybody in the music industry. He takes you to the center of the Aragon, and it's almost like a parquet thing, but it's circular. And it starts out as a little circle. And that little circle gets bigger, 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 and all of a sudden it encompasses the entire floor of the Aragon, and it was set up on a shock absorber system. And I, I mean, it was incredible. And there was somebody in the basement that lived there, and he was like the curator. <laughs> he did everything there. I never met him. But it used to be called the Cheetah when I was a little boy or oh, when really? even born. Yeah, it was called the Cheetah. Let's say, I've been, I've been to the Aragon. Dozens of times, never once saw the floor there. <laughs> Not one time. Well, yeah, and it's a very violent dance floor. Right, yeah. these days. Right. Ted Nugent walked out, and and he says, "You see this place, and you look down because the dance floor used to be low, and then they raised it. Not the dance floor, the stage, and they raised it." And he says, "You look down, 
and you see these hands coming up, reaching out toward you, it looks you're like it looks like you're at the edge of falling into hell. That's what <laughs> Ted Nugent said, you know? We would laugh at that. But we worked everybody there. I mean, I worked the Ramones there. I worked uh, the Runaways there, the um, the the Clash. Throughout all the year, everybody. We worked everybody there. Um, yeah, it was just incredible. Those had to have been some cool fucking shows. Seeing like the Ramones and the Clash, like in the oh. turn of like the, yeah. the punk era. Oh my like God, the, I remember. In the, in the heyday. <laughs> right, that's right, what I'm saying. Right. Like right, right they as had it's combat around. rock and, you know, we had... They had breached. They had breached the 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 chairs and this and that, and and the fights we got in there. I mean, I remember whatever we learned that week at Bushido. You know, I mean, it got put to use. <laughs> this out. Yeah. You know, Terry remember Stewart. Remember this really cool thing we learned. Like, you know, and, I'm trying it tonight. Right. And I, I mean, working with these guys. You know, and I was the youngest one of them. You know, and uh, I remember Bob Lado. Uh, Terry, uh, we had a guy named Herbie April, who was tremendous at jiu-jitsu, you know, an African-American guy, a a super guy, you know, he worked with us, and I mean, I mean, it it would be crack, 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 you know, I mean, we'd clear an aisle, it'd be pop, pop, pop. You know, and they were just out. Just look to you him know? when there's a guy sit, laying on the floor. I mean, you can't, like, what the fuck you, you couldn't carry on like that anymore. Now, right. I mean, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, no. No. Well, you know, yeah, but it's it, a lot it, cooler to hear about. Right, <laughs> well, right. it seems like during those days, because don't forget, like you guys had the Degaberg Academy click, and when Dan Trader was in here, he had the same kind of guys from the Shootacon, right? Uh, right, right. Uh, Lincoln Park um, uh, Fitness Center, and uh, all the guys who trained Shootacon would work at Neo's. I and worked at Neo. Did you really? Yeah, I worked did you at know Neo. That, what? Did you, you know, know Dan yeah. Trader? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I grew up with a guy named Eddie Yoshimura. And yeah, Eddie he Yoshi- was the one who owns that place. He was yeah. a copper. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Chicago Fitness. I was a member of Chicago Fitness Me Center. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And Eddie, oh. Eddie and I, we, we both graduated. Ricky's a lot better looking than you, just so you know. <laughs> I don't doubt that. <laughs> hey, I, I wouldn't fight Eddie for anything now. You know, yeah. And I, I love Eddie. But um, Eddie and I were best friends. Uh, growing up, you know, uh, high school, you know, right out of high school. And um, when he opened up the first Chicago Fitness Center at Clark and Cornelia, you know, we, we were members there. Um, I started working when I got out of high school at Chicago Health Club. And I had just joined uh, the Marina City Health Club. And like I said, I was a skinny kid. And I got into karate, got real good at karate, but I was still skinny, you know, light. Yeah. And um, I wanted to get into lifting. And there was a guy named Phil Smeja, who was another mentor of mine, who grew up with uh, Fred Degerberg. And Phil Smeja, um, he was a boxer. He was a AAU, you know, Golden Glove champ. Um, he was a, a lifter. He was Mr. USA. Um, he introduced me to Bob Gaida. And Bob Gaida was a Mr. Universe, Mr. USA. Um he had a, uh, he's a physical therapist. He had a physical therapy place out in a Western suburb. But I got to meet these legends. Um, like I say, more people put in my path. Um, yeah. And when I started working at Chicago Health Clubs, um, it all changed. And I had signed up in 78, which I'll get to, to take the test, uh, the fire department exam. I mean, all this time, I'm still wanting to get on that fire department. But I, I, 
uh, became the manager of the Marina City Chicago Health Club. We worked a 12-hour day there. And, um, you know, I learned from these guys and me being in the gym all the time, there was no way a customer could come in and tell me they didn't need to work out, you know. And um, the owner of Chicago, uh, uh, Chicago Health Clubs wouldn't let you work out during company time. So Marina City, I'd work nine to nine and then at nine o'clock, shut the gym down and then train, you know, and I'd have some friends of mine show up and, you know, work out with me. Um, so, but I got to meet some legends there. Um, I got my uh, certified instructor, you know, what is now a personal trainer um, in 77 um, from Paul Ward and Paul and his brother were the strength coach for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> And the <laughs> America's team. So yeah. Chicago Health Club was part of an organization where their office was at 230 West Monroe, and it was Health and Tennis Corporation of America. And at that time, they owned 200 clubs nationwide. In New York, they were called Jack LaLanne's. In Chicago, they started out as Vic Tannies, but they turned into Chicago Health Clubs. In Texas, they were President First Lady Clubs. On the West Coast, they were holiday spas, and the operating partner um, at that time, um, in I became manager of the year with a guy named Bill Milburn, um, who was a tremendous guy, um, you know, a tremendous uh, athlete, and I mean, this guy had classic cars and stuff. But he and I wanted to win a national contest out of the two hundred clubs, and we won. And they sent me out oh, to. Wow. West LA. That was my only time on the West Coast. But um, the operating partner there was Rudy Smith, the inventor of the Smith Press. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And Rudy Smith at the time opened up um, this gym that in 79, when we were manager of the year, not 78, 79, um, this guy had 2,000 workouts a day through that gym. And it's wild because see how gyms have come. You know, back then they had a woman's side and a men's side. They didn't work out together. They might have had a, a track that they shared or they shared the pool. But that's how far you know, things have come, like in gyms. Yeah, see, I mean, Vince would have never even been to the gym if it was still like that when he first started going to the gym. <laughs> Women over there? Nah, I'm out. <laughs> how else are they supposed to see my sweet, my sweet press when I'm going? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so no kidding. So I mean, you've you've lived a thousand lives before you even sign up to this test. Like you're you're all over the place working, uh, working these concerts. Well, just think. I mean, this is seventy five. Right. I mean, I got rescued in sixty three. We got here in sixty one, going into sixty two. I mean, how much has happened in those twelve years? You know, uh, right. thirteen years or whatever. But um, but the one constant is you want to be a fireman without a doubt. And so are, are we at a point where we could talk about that? Yet? We can. There, yeah. yeah, we can. Um, working Chicago Health Clubs where I met um, Kevin Casey. Because Kevin Casey was a member of, and this is before the fire department, Kevin Casey worked out at the Oak Park Chicago Health Club, and his workout partner was Jug Kelly, which was best friends with um, Al Phillips, the executive vice president of Chicago Health Clubs. Wow. And, um, and you're... And Kevin Casey is not a fireman at this point? Or? I don't think he was a fireman. This was like 1977. Okay. No, uh, yeah, 77 probably. And um, 50. Was Kevin like, back in those days as big as like we remember him in his heyday? Like, yeah, he just, was bigger. 
Oh, yeah, he was bigger, and you know, I we would go there, uh, and actually, I was a powerlifter, and I was only in one bodybuilding contest, and that was the uh, police fire bodybuilding thing in 1990 or 91, I think it was, and Kevin had talked me into um, competing, you know, mm -hmm. and it was Park West at that time. I'm working at Park West. I'm on the job, you know, I'm on the fire department. And, um, but Kevin, you know, you know, here, everybody's dieting this and that. And, uh, Kevin shows up, smells like smoke. He was probably, you know, right out of a, you know, 117's house, you know, <laughs> pulls out a, a, a six pack of beer. He wants to give me one, you know, and we're doing this preliminary thing that bodybuilders do a pre pre thing you know and he's drinking everybody's you know this drinking part of my process <laughs> you know they're eating these you know drinking this thing and they're there's a cycle that you do you know and i don't mean a drug cycle i mean a cycle with food and you know you lean out and then you carb up and then your muscles and and vascular system Just pop and pop exactly and you got to time it right or you'll get smooth you'll yeah. look like a, a doughboy, you know and uh, that's why I didn't worry about that powerlifting, you know. And I, I always, I mean, even to today, you know, I can eat, eat all day and then, you know, get up in the morning a couple pounds light. That's how my uh, metabolism is. Exactly. So, huh. but yeah, here's Kevin, you know, doing this. <laughs> that's, that's much the same thing with you, Husky. No, no, no. So no. anyway, um, you know, we entered this thing and um, I was in a lightweight class and uh, I placed second. There was two other firemen with me, Ed Gill and another guy and um you know ed ed you know got first place in the light in the lightweight i got second place and uh the other guy got uh third but uh that was my one and only where'd kevin place you know i can't remember but um he looked great you know i mean to me even when i met him back in in 77 kevin looked like little abner you know to me i mean he looked like like the cartoon strip little abner you know and uh Oh yeah, man, I love I love that guy. You know what what a great fireman. You know, I mean, just tremendous. You know, um, yeah. So these guys, I mean, you're getting a lot of a lot of outside influence. You're getting a lot of well, complete you know, a lot of guys that a lot of guys from all over the job. They're you know for all for all accounts are some of the cream of the crop of oh yeah of firemen at this point. So you know, like, and you're there only was a getting more reinforcement to do what you want to do. And there was a common denominator with the guys that I grew up in Lakeview. And these guys were older than me. Um, I mean, they were great mentors. And I, you know, I, I got to say, you know, I'm lucky and grateful that I, I had these mentors, you know, that were positive and, you know, could have gone the other way, you know. Um, you know, you see a lot of guys in the neighborhood that, Right, but didn't have the breaks and this and that. And we were talking about Mark Thomas, like like some of the you know those when you get roped into a system with bad influences, like, you know, it, it wouldn't, I'm sure it wasn't, I'm sure you had a, as many friends as probably, you know, me, Vince and Steve. Oh, that, sure. Like, if we didn't become blue collar, you know, firemen, it was going to be a very different path for, yeah. for guys. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've all pretty much had a, uh, a, a, like a same, uh, a same type of uh, good hearted, you know, you want to help somebody, um, Firemen, oh, they got a, a second gig. You know, they're usually plumbers. You know, they're tradesmen, uh, a painter, uh, podcasters. Podcaster, <laughs> for instance. Right, you know. Right. Um, well, Rick, is your security 
history with the Aragon and all that, is that what led you to uh, Mike Ness's doorstep? Yes. Um, I still do private stuff now. Um, if it wasn't for this COVID thing, um, John Dunsmore of The Doors, I, I do all of Reckless Records, the, 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 the store. I do their security gigs. I do their record store day stuff. Um, and I do private stuff. Reckless is uh, uh, in Uptown, right? Yeah, Reckless is on the uh, on on Belmont right now. That used to be on Broadway. They have a location in Wicker Park on Milwaukee. Um, they also have a store downtown, I think, on Washington or Randolph, one of those streets. But I do all their in stores, um, and I've been doing them for years. And I mean, just like we're good at what we do, you know, second nature wise, and being at a busy company. I mean. You just go to work. You, you 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 know you size up right off the bat, and you go. I mean, it's the same thing with 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 the security, or it's the same thing with me running a gym, um, or you know training somebody. You know, uh, and and you know, I had tremendous high level you know mentors that that whether it was in the martial arts or whether it was in powerlifting or whether it was uh, oh, the fire the, department. Yeah, the fire department. Yeah. You know, Bob Bob Hoff was my main mentor. But, to take us to the point where you guys crossed paths, you and you and Mike. It was 1982. Uh, did you want to know when I came on or when I took the test in 78? Yeah, yeah. Whatever okay. you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm managing two gyms for the, the health clubs. I had the 230 West Monroe, which was the executive health club. And then I had the uh, Marina City uh, gym. And the next year we had one, you know, manager of the year, Bill Milburn and I. Yeah. Um, and um, I got called to report to Lane what, Tech. What, what was your number? I was on the eighty-one hundred six list, um, and um, so I, you got you got called twice. Well, well, kind of. Um, <laughs> we take the test at seventy-eight, seventy-nine. There was a class of a hundred that they hired. Now I haven't seen a list or anything at that time. They don't send you a list. Um, uh, they, January of 80, they hire a hundred and then the strike happens February, February 14th of 80. And, uh, I was part of the 8106 list. I had seen, uh, a copy of, uh, the original one. I was 250. So I would have been 80, uh, 50 out. Um, and like I said, they hired 179, 180 and, my dad said to me, you know, nobody had phones, nobody had, you had a, I remember I had a phone made answering machine and I'm working at the health club for 12 hours and then working out for an hour and 20 minutes, coming home on the Broadway bus, right. you know, and, and getting something to eat and being back at work uh, at the gym at nine in the morning the next day. That's just how it went. Um, so my dad says, what are you going to do? And uh, I go, you know. I go, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 they're striking, but I, I, I can't cross a picket line. I just, that's a, that was a, a moral thing for me and a personal thing for me. And, um, Jimmy O'Donnell with Jimmy yeah. O'Donnell, mm -hmm. the chief, Jimmy O'Donnell knew each other. We took the test together and he was a member of the Ridge Chicago health club and he had come on in 79 
and he says, Ricky, don't you come on now. You know, that's him I, at the you know I was just going to ask you, because like you didn't necessarily come from like a guy. No. Uh, like the Cambrias, like, Frank and say, his yeah, whole or, family. Or even like Steve, like like you didn't come from a union firefighter family, so no. you don't know no. one from one thing from another. All you know is that you want to be a fireman. Yeah. But like just talking to guys that you kind of came, you know, guys that you knew that were on the job, right? Correct. Like they kind of advise you like, this is not the move. Correct. Okay. And, and, you know, I got I to gotta tell you right now. And uh, you've been I'm, waiting a long time for this job. Well, yeah. Six years know. old. <laughs> you know, yeah. Since uh, yeah, yeah. Right. so now here it comes, but now it's he knew he wanted to be scrutiny. a fireman before he knew English. Conyo <laughs> <laughs> Mang. So, uh, but really, you know, and I got to tell you, I worked with guys on both sides of the line. I worked with tremendous guys that didn't cross the picket line, and I worked with tremendous guys that crossed it. Yeah. And it's a personal thing. I I only can speak for Rick Vega, and um, you know it was my decision not to, and it would be the same way now. And yeah, I mean, I wanted to leave the health club and 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 have my dream job, but I so I you would wait. have been in the class of eighty. I should have been no no because I was two fifty, so they okay. hired seventy nine. I, I would have been in the class if they hired a class in eighty, but I would have been in the class of eighty two. But this is how things are and how you should save. Like I told you, I saved my dad. Said, save that stub. Save your all your stuff from the Chicago Fire Department. Give it to me. We'll put it in this manila envelope, you know, manila file. And we saved it because you never know when you might need it. And um, I'm continuing, you know, the, the strike ends. A thousand guys cross picket lines. And uh, I remember my dad and I bringing coffee to the guys at uh, the firehouse at Diversity in Halstead. And they had a barrel burning, you know, the, the B.O.B. that brought her to bar barrel guys. And um, I had told them, and my dad told them the story. Oh, yeah, he, because I remember getting 10 messages one day when I got home from the gym, you know, from work in the health clubs and wanting me to call personnel and wanting me to go down to the CFD gym at Navy Pier. This was after the strike? No, this is right or before right the before. strike. They're yeah. trying to get you to, to come on. Right. And then I got a letter, and I still have that letter somewhere. Um, and it said, you need to report to the fire department gym immediately, or you may never come on the fire department. We'll take your name off the list or something to that Some avail. Type of, yeah. yeah I Somewhat mean, legal nonsense. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not wording it sure. for what it said. Um, and I remember calling Terry Stewart and Terry was down there with some guys picketing. And cause he knew that these guys were all coming down there to the gym. And I talked to uh, my, uh, the, uh, Billy Milburn, he and I were co-managing. He goes, Ricky, go down there. And I was at Marina City, so it was a straight shot down Grand Avenue to go right. over there. And I saw Terry Stewart, and I remember when I got to the, you know, to the fire department gym, hearing scab, pa 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 pa, this and that. And I'm like looking around at these guys, you know, we're gonna remember you, and blah blah blah. So I'm like, whoa whoa whoa. I go, I just got this letter. I'm not coming on now. And then I see Terry Stewart, and he stopped them. 
stop those guys. He goes, no, I work with him. You know, he works at the concerts with me. So he walked in with me. And I remember having, and I said to the letter, I hand the letter over, and there was these people at this desk and uh, in the gym there. And are you going to take, they said, even if you signed and, and you wanted to do it, there was some provision in there on a 90-day thing where they could get rid of you after 90 days. And I said, you know what? I go, just stop. I go, I want to be a fireman more than anything. This is not the right way to come on. This is not right, the right way to do it. I'm not coming on now. And that's just that. So I would hate to think that I'm going to lose my spot here because I try to do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, they're striking for a reason. I mean, those guys didn't have proper equipment. They didn't have masks. They weren't getting promoted. Vince would be the acting lieutenant for a month or something or or less. They weren't paying them extra. They were doing all sorts. I mean, I've heard horrific things. And you know what? I mean, if these guys were like my dad's age, you know, I'm going to slap Eddie Groy in the face and and take his job and and you had the irish guys that had 10 kids and they were all in a catholic school that cost them a lot of money and i i just morally couldn't do it and i wouldn't do it now i mean i made my decision and um and that that's just how it went down and in 82 you know obviously the strike ended thousand guys crossed picket line and um jesse jackson took credit for you know whatever with (laughs) jane byrne and uh I'm at Marina City, and there were these two policemen that would work out there at night, and they were mass transit guys. They rode the subways, and they rode the subways in 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 plain clothes, and they would pretend like they were sleeping with a rolled up, you know, newspaper, and they'd catch all sorts of people trying to rob them. Huh. So, I remember they would put their radio down in my office, and they'd go work out. They were members, you know, and it was their lunch or whatever, probably, and they said, "Ricky, if you hear." And I remember everything. If you hear 185 Adam, <laughs> come get us. 185 Adam. We were joking around one time, and I go, I want to answer the thing. He goes, call for a radio check. So I go, 185 Adam, uh, can I have a radio check? 54321. You know, <laughs> it was funny. But he goes, don't, don't do that too often, though. So, but, but anyway, they came in one day, and this is 1982, and he says, what are you doing here? Rick, what are you still doing here? And I go, well, what do you mean? So uh, he goes, my neighbor's kid's been in the academy for a month. So I should have been out if I was 250 on the thing and 100 and 100 in in 79 and 80. I should have been. Well, come to find out, they had taken a bunch of people's names off that list when they turned it down. Oh, just removed them off the list? Really? Yeah. That's what I found out later on. Well, all of a sudden... Um, I called the next morning to the academy and Moriarty and Malik, the chiefs were running the academy then. And, uh, I said, I, I talked to somebody there and, and, you know, I told them who I was and I told them what I just told you. And they said, uh, well, you got to call personnel. I mean, you know, and back then, I mean, if you called city hall for anything, I mean, they disconnected you five times or, you know, you'd be on hold. It's to- totally different. Until now. you hang up, <laughs> you know, Nothing's and changed, that's when, yeah. you know, you had, you know, that room there, room 105 or whatever it was, room 10 or whatever. And um, so I finally got through and they said to me, 
what is your name? And they said, well, and I said, well, Rick Vega, it'd be under Ricardo Vega. That's my proper name. And um, they said, well, we have no record of you even taking the exam. And I got all that paperwork, thank God, because of my dad. Well, I grew up with Mark Jadwin, and Mark Jadwin, you know, we grew up on Aldean Street, and he, he became a fireman. Well, he was a fireman. He came on during a strike, and, you know, we were best friends growing up in a, as a kid. And his uncle was a guy named Dick Julian who was uh, a, a police officer, but he ran internal affairs then. And he had said to me, Ricky, he goes, he called me up, and I was brokenhearted. I'm like, what is this? So he says, bring all your paperwork, meet me on the LaSalle side of City Hall tomorrow at 8. So I got on the Ravenswood line, how I would go down to Marina City, or I'd take yeah. the 36 bus, Broadway. Oh, with your Manila folder. Yeah, roll over there, and he meets me there. Well, we went right up to personnel. I mean, he was in charge of... Um, IA. IA, yeah. and uh, he could do that. So we went in. Sure enough, he looks at it. They look at everything. They're looking at me, and they go, hmm. So I remember they had the little Motorola speaker, you know, and then the, and, and yeah. they called the academy, and they talked to either Malik or Moriarty, the chiefs, and they said, well, okay. And they go, well, this kid should be on. I mean, we got to get this. He's got the paperwork, everything here. And um, so they said, well, listen, the academies back then aren't the year that we're having now, or longer, what we have now. Um, so the 82 class, I think, might have been like eight weeks um, or, or whatever. I'm, I know the 83 class, when I came on, was 12 weeks. Right. And they said, well, he can't. They just passed Firefighter 2. We can't, we can't rush him through here now. He's got to be in the next class. You know, and, you, and, and then, you know, people said, well, you could sue because now... Because I didn't come on an 80, I lost five years, right? You right. know? Oh, wow. Of yeah. seniority. Yeah. Or three years, actually, um, and three years of pay. But all I wanted to do was get on. Right. You know, and somebody had told my dad, well, he could sue for back. You know, my dad says, we don't sue. You know, we came here from Cuba. You know, we're grateful for everything. He just wants to come on and do it the right way. And that's what I did. So. Um, did you they know, throw you in that class, or did you have to wait for the next class? No, I came on in 83, and I came on with some great guys, you know, Mike Restivo, his dad was a fireman on 55, you know, so many great guys, and, you know, Bobby O'Toole. And was it an eight-week eight academy? It was. And as a first responder? Right, you didn't, you didn't get a EMT. Or EMT. We had gotten an EMT early on, a few of us. And our class was the only class that had three guys from Bensonville in our academy. <laughs> it was crazy. And then, believe it or not, which never occurred uh, prior, um, it was it was a cold winter. You know, I was in February, and the other one was February of '82. Um, but guys were getting hurt um, doing this physical fitness thing, and guys were getting hurt. I mean, pulling muscles, doing this, doing that. And I had come on and I believe me, I had some tremendous instructors in my academy class that I got to give a shout out to. Mike Deckelman, I had Tom Donellan, I had Bill Myers, who was on 22, uh, a truck 22. Um, and thank God for those guys. And, you know, Tom Donellan was uh, on uh, squad two at the time, but I had come up to him and 
said to him, hey, listen, we're doing things wrong here. These guys are getting hurt because the person doing the physical fitness, you got to warm these guys up. you got to warm us up before we go on that mile run. You know, you got to think intelligent. I go, right. I'm an instructor. I go, I'm still managing the gym over there. I took a, you know, I worked, I, 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 once I graduated from the fire academy, then I went full-time again. You know, not full-time, but the days that I was off. So I said, let me run the thing. You know, can I, can I, can I do something? I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I mean, you're a candidate. You're not even an right. instructor. But they agreed to it, and Malik and Moriarty said, let them run it. And nobody got hurt, knock on wood, you know, and I warmed them up. And I had I those say, guys. So you were kind of the fire academy lead or whatever, or you were kind of like, yeah, you were the like, Yeah, the as a candidate, though. I mean, yeah. that's never happened before. <laughs> but nobody got hurt after that. And it was only eight weeks. I mean, um, so not to knock the guy who was in charge. Uh, he was a captain. And I, I didn't know how to, you know, I'd never been to a fire yet. So, you know, other than seeing it from the sidewalk, but. Right. Um, so and in, all in the respect. academy, you, you wanted to go back to truck 44, which was the firehouse by where you, where you grew up. Well, yeah. And, and at that time we didn't know that that was a truck that rescued me. I mean, right, you right. know, and my grandfather and, uh, we had no idea who did it. And, but you, you know, you wanted to go back to your I neighborhood. I did because I mean, we were bringing them coffee during a strike right. and we kind of figured, these, you know, these were your neighborhood guys. Well, yeah, but I remember my father or me asking them. I was rescued as, as a little boy with my grandfather, and, and they said, oh, wow, where? where? I go, at Melrose and Broadway. He goes, oh, we, we would have been first truck. We would have been first truck. And uh, when they did do the rescue in 63, those guys, I don't know if you guys know, um, they called them on the air. They were coming back from a 211. My fire turned into a 311. Um, they, right, they had, they had really? just got done with the 211. They had a 211. They were coming, at, they were coming back, yeah. and then they caught. Yeah, uh, so these guys had been working for hours at a 211 yeah. at Clark and where school turns into Waldine there. Yeah. And um, they called them on the air, and then now well, they, be, not, before we get too far into so that. So your, your dad is a, uh, your dad for all, all intents sounds like a pretty, pretty stand-up great guy. Um, well, yeah, he passed how, away. In, how how was he when you got out of the academy? What was your family? How did you guys feel coming out of it when you got graduated from the academy? Well, I loved it. I mean, my mom was like, "Oh my God, did you have to take such a profession?" You know, but she knew I loved it. You sure. know, you know, I'm a, I was own, her only child. I mean, she's just looking out for you. Yeah. Um, where did you go? I went to Truck Twenty One. We where's that? On Damon and Grace. Okay, so you're you're still oh same battalion. Yeah, you're still yeah. in the same neighborhood. Yeah, and and then the battalion um, originally, I think the chief was at eighty. Uh, excuse me, it's at fifty five's house. And the reason I didn't go to Truck Forty Four, um, there was a chief there named Terry O'Brien who was on the second platoon, and I would see him in the neighborhood, and I would see him at. Um, uh, for, uh, not Foster Beach, but uh, Fullerton Beach. And he would, you know, they had buggy drivers there and he'd be sitting there and I'd walk up to him, you know, when I was down there and say, uh, we had, we would, we had like a little workout station set up uh, right behind theater on the lake. You know, and I knew the lifeguards there. I was a lifeguard in 75 at Foster and we had a little workout station there, you know, benches and whatever. And uh, I remember going there and whenever I'd see him pull up in, in the SUV, the big SUV or the car, they had a buggy driver. You know, I'd say to him, uh, are they hiring? Are they hiring? Are they hiring? You know, <laughs> and, and he, he was a great guy. And I, 
I would tell them, you know, you know, I, tur- I, I, I took the test in 78 and I turned the job down in 80 and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I, I think I did the right thing. And I believe not knowing that he, he crossed the picket line and came out at 80. <laughs> you know, wow. wow. Yeah. You ain't impressing me. <laughs> but hey, you know what? He was a real nice chief. He was yeah. real good with me. And so I remember getting a knock on the door. Um, we had taken firefighter two. And uh, we were in the big classroom upstairs at the academy, and all of a sudden the door opens, and um, you know you see one of the chiefs say, "Vega, come here," you know, and I see a battalion. I'm thinking, well, either a parent passed away or something happened, you know. Not usually a good sign. Not usually a good sign, and um, so it was chief. There was two Terry O'Briens, a South Side guy, and this guy was on the North Side, and. Um, like I say, I work with good guys on both sides of that line. And I, he said to me, hey, listen, he goes, there's, there's going to be a change. And he was real calm and goes, uh, we were going to put you on truck 44, but something's going on over there. And from what I understood, there was some infighting. And I guess it was with him and a certain battalion, a uh, certain shift there, you know. And, I mean, we're talking only, you know, three years after the, the strike. And, you know, uh, tensions were still real high, you know. And, um I, you know, what am I going to say? You know, well, forget it. You know, no, you know, I go, Hey, Hey, he goes, I'm going to put you on truck 21. You know, you grew up with Mark Jadwin. He's on that truck and Rudy Schleck is your officer. He's a great guy. He was a U.S. Marine. Um, you're, we're all going to the same fire. Everything was a stolen box, if not, if not larger. And Bob O'Toole, who came on with me, went on the engine there on 112. I mean, our first day, I mean, you know, we had five fires. I mean, we were throwing up when we had the steel MSA bottles with the regulator on your hip here. And, um, I mean, it was literally ba- uh, true, true meaning of literally baptism under fire. That, and, that was your first day as a firefighter. Yeah. When I came on, I mean, first of all, 80s, 83's house was the busiest firehouse in the nation. And, um, you know, they were second engine or second truck by us with 78 and, and, and truck 21 and, and even 55s. So, um, you know, Rudy Schleck was great. And, and he, he saw my work ethic and, you know, I just you know, grabbed him up and did the inventory. I did the inventory on the, on the, on the engine with Bob O'Toole. And I just shut my mouth, didn't sit down and just grabbed him up and mopped. And when the cook came in, I grabbed his bags and stuff. Could we all know stuff. the scenario. Yeah. Did you always want to be on the truck, or at any point did you want to be on the engine? Well, I knew Eddie. I knew I got rescued from a truck guy later on when I found out. Well, it had to have been a truck guy, you know, because the engine guys are on the engine. You know, they're they're they got a hose on them. They're leading out, yeah. yeah, they're leading out, and they got enough to do, especially in a cold day like that. You know, um, later on you find out the real deal of things and. Uh, yeah, so no, so, no predisposed, like you didn't. No, you I mean, a, a truck. Side of the, I, I yeah. think a truck, and from listening to Mark Jadwin, who grew, you know, he came on, we took the test, but he came on an 80, and I turned it down an 80. You know, he was like, well, I'm on a truck, and we we carry a pipe pole, we carry an axe, and it's just more fun on a truck. And I was physical. <laughs> I'm physical, man, you know. And so Rudy Schleck saw my work ethic after a while, and we were we were going to work, man. We were going to work all the time. I don't think there was a day where we didn't have no fire back then. 
and it'd either be by us or it'd be you're following 55 or 78 right. or 83. Do you remember your first fire? Yes. Was that? Um, we had, uh, well, I remember my first day. My first fire um, was in 112 still, and it was a frame, um, and it was on Bradley or it might have been on Bradley. Um, but I remember my first day, I remember the, the, my first 311, um, and that was on Malden, <laughs> you know, Malden, you know, just north of Montrose. We were second truck there and truck 21 was an American of France and Stanley Stash, who later on became the engineer of 43's house. Uh, he, he was a tremendous roof guy. And they, Rudy started sending me to the roof right away, which is unheard of. And, um, you know, Stanley said to him, you know, that Ricky Vega is good. You know, I'll take Ricky Vega up there because his partner had just gotten promoted to engineer. And oh, he, uh, you know, wasn't there anymore. So I apparently I was the, the, the candidate that took his spot, you right. know. And um, so... Uh, I, I got a chance to work with some incredible guys, like from Rudy Schleck, the, the Marine, to um, Louis Blatz, the Captain 83, um, you know, all those guys. Uh, well, why don't we, you guys want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's take a quick break. We'll take a break. Yeah. And when we come back, we got This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories brought to you by Illuminated Brew Works, located at 6186 North, Northwest Highway. Available now, Millennial Munchie, which is a 13.5% stout made with peanut butter, coconut, and cocoa. As always, Tuesday night is trivia night at Illuminated Brew Works. Stop by, have amazing beer, 6186 North, Northwest Highway, Illuminated Brew Works next door to the car wash. The opinions and views are that of Chicago's bravest stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations.